Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans. A couple of weeks ago now, uh, Lee and I spent a, a few days up in Chicago, and we stayed in a hotel, and of course, when you stay in the hotel, you have to take the boys to the pool. And I'm sure you know this as, as parents, um, for those of you who, who, are, who are parents, you can tell a lot about your child's personality simply by taking them to the pool. Our, our two oldest boys uh, couldn't be more opposite when it comes to their personality and their disposition. Um, we have one who tends to wear his emotions on his sleeve, but he's also the cautious one. Uh, him and Risk don't get along too well, and so when he goes to the pool, he, he slowly dips his toe in, gently wades into the shallow end, sits down at the bottom stair, and kind of surveys his surroundings. But his brother, on the other hand, is much more frank. He does things a little differently. He doesn't need to test the water. He just goes for it, jumps right into the deep end. No fear in the world. And I share that this morning because, in a sense, we are jumping into the deep end this morning. Uh, I've been asked uh, several times in, in leading up today, Jordan, what, uh, what book of the Bible are you going to preach through first? And, and I spent a good amount of time um, praying and, and thinking about this, but, but what I concluded is let's just go for it. Let's jump into the deep end. Let's tackle the book of Romans right out of the gate. And, and so I'm very excited uh, for this. I'm I'm just um, anxious to just to labor in this text over many months to come. Um, I'm not sure exactly how long this will take us. Um, it, it definitely will be over a year. Um, I would guess somewhere between one and, and two years. Um, but you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll be taking breaks along the way as, as the Lord leads. And so this is where we are setting up shop for the foreseeable future. Now, should we read and, and study and, and preach the whole Bible? Yes, of course, right? We, we, when we get done with this book and preaching through Romans, we'll, we'll go to, it, to another book. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones has noted, it, it seems as if no book of the Bible has been used in a more exponential manner, a more exceptional manner in the history of the church than the book of Romans. St. Augustine who was used by God to, to mightily uh, fight off heresy in the early church. What did he use to demolish the heretical teaching? He expounded the epistle to the Romans. Martin Luther in the 16th century began teaching through the book of Romans to his students in the Catholic church. And it was the epistle Romans where he was overwhelmed as he's teaching the text with the doctrine of justification by faith, which ultimately paved the way for the Protestant Reformation. The, the, the scripture certainly doesn't give us a, a hierarchy of its canon. And so we have to be careful here. All Scripture is breathed by God and is profitable to equip the man for every good work. But, but I don't think it's an overstatement at all to, to agree with Lloyd-Jones and affirm that no book of the Bible has been used in more exceptional ways in the history of the church than the, the epistle to the Romans. And so this morning we are going to cover just one verse, chapter 1, verse 1, and we will not go this slow typically. Um, but we're just going to chew off one verse this morning because it is jam-packed with expositional potential. And so, might the Lord help us. I've entitled this sermon, The Author's Credentials. And, and the main idea I want us to consider, as you'll see in your worship folder, we'll see from the text, is the reality that, that the Apostle Paul was well-suited for this endeavor. He, he was properly credentialed, we might say, to write this letter to Rome. And similarly, as we will see as we look to apply the text, 
we too are properly credentialed for the gospel ministry God calls us to. The Apostle Paul was properly credentialed to write this letter to Rome. We too are properly credentialed for the gospel ministry God calls us to. And you'll see in your worship folder that we're going to operate under these four headings this morning. His new signature, his new service, his new status, and his new separation. I've broken the the verse down into four parts, each point divided by a comma uh, in the English text, in the ESV. And so we'll see Paul's new signature from verse 1a, his new service from verse 1b, his new status from verse 1c, and his new separation from verse 1d. Now before we, we jump into the text, I, I think it's important for us to, to just give some, spend some time with some introductory comments, um, just by kind of way of overview as it pertains to, to this particular letter and, and the context in which it was written. And so this letter, that's really what, what an epistle is, it, it's a letter um, written by the Apostle Paul, and we'll, we'll cover uh, him in much more detail in just a second. But, but it was written around the year 55, 58 A.D. There, there's some dispute as to exactly when, but roughly 30 years after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord. And, and it's believed that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter while in Corinth, uh, somewhere near his third missionary journey. But this is not a church that was started directly under Paul's missionary activity. Rather, w- when Peter uh, preached at Pentecost, there were more than likely sojourners from Rome present, and and it would be hard to believe that that none of those returned to Rome, and therefore shortly after, and and started to preach the gospel that they had come to believe themselves. But but even though Paul didn't have a hand in in the birth of the church, like like he did many others, Corinth, Ephesus, Thessalonica, others, It'll become clear as we go further here through chapter 1 that even though Paul had never been to Rome, he longed to be. There is a desire to meet these people and to minister to these people, and he was providentially hindered. But even though he didn't have a connection in planting the church in Rome, where faith is, it seeks the fellowship of the saints. And so Paul, because he understood the apostolic gifting which he was given, which we'll see in a minute, he wanted to strengthen and encourage the saints in Rome. And so he sets out to write this letter. And he writes to a largely Gentile audience. His focus is mainly to the Gentiles, that is true. But we will see clearly as we go through this letter that he addresses the Jews pretty specifically at times. Uh, as far as the, the major themes of, of this epistle, it's very theological. Paul, Paul desires that the church in Rome be united in their theology and in their doctrine. And, and so we see themes like the, the sovereignty of God and justification by faith, which we've already mentioned. Righteousness and, and how we might obtain righteousness in Christ. And, and then maybe more than anything else, the theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. But Paul writes with his apostolic authority and labors to shape their theological understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord willing, that will become crystal clear over the next handful of months. And so, please stand with me now, if you are able, out of respect for God, as we read his word to us this morning. Again, this is just one verse, so don't get too comfortable standing. But every verse is inspired by God. 
Every verse of the Bible is a, is a dart shot by the Spirit aimed at your soul. And so, listen with eagerness and reverence this morning. God says this to us in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The grass fades and the flowers wither, but the word of our Lord will remain forever. Amen. You may be seated. We are dealing here in this verse with the author's credentials. What Paul is doing is establishing himself. He's seeking to establish himself in these first seven verses, and particularly in verse 1 as he's addressing the recipients of this letter. He's saying, this is what gives me validity. I'm not hanging my hat on my own authority. This, is, this isn't just some random guy's two cents about how to, to think and conduct yourselves rightly. Rather, let me display to you my credentials, why you ought to receive this letter favorably. And so this is the message I want you to hear this morning. This is why you ought to receive this book over the next many months that we preach through. This is why you ought to receive it favorably. He does this at the beginning of, of every one of his epistles uh, to some degree. But, but here in Romans is where he spills the most ink with regarding giving himself validity and, and establishing himself. He, he spends more time establishing himself here than, than any other letters. Why is that? Well, because we've already mentioned these people don't know Paul like Ephesus knew Paul. These people don't know Paul like Corinth knew Paul. And so Paul starts by saying, this is what makes me well-suited. This is why I am appropriate to write, this is why it is appropriate for me to write this letter. I can write this letter to you because I am properly credentialed. It's like a crime scene. You know, the first thing that the detective does when he shows up on the crime scene, what do they do? They flash their badge, right? They're their credentials, which communicates a lot. It communicates that they have the right to be there and they have some authority on the scene. And so um, this is what Paul is doing here. Maybe a, something similar, even closer to home, um, as a pastor, when I am in a, a discipling or, or a counseling, counseling scenario, I, I was just in one this week, um, one of my favorite people was, was in my office and explaining to me that, that she was struggling with a, a particular sin in her life. And, and she wanted my counsel with, with how to move forward. And, and one of the things I said to her was, Sister, as your pastor, I want to encourage you to put this sin to death in your life. Now, I, I could have just said, I, I think you ought to put the sin to death in your life. But when I added, as your pastor... It communicates my love for her. It communicates my, my compassion. It communicates that, that I'm, in, in some sense, responsible for, for spiritually shepherding your soul. And so by adding, as your pastor, my, my plea to you, sister, is to put this to death. What I'm doing is, is hanging my hat not on my own authority, which is exactly what, what Paul is doing here. And, and we, can't, we can't gloss over, I, I think we have a tendency to do this, we, we gloss over the first couple books, or first, first couple of verses of a book of the Bible, and we say, yeah, you know, that's important. You know, just give me the meat of the matter. But there is plenty of meat here, brethren. And so first, the author's signature. This letter starts by declaring who the author is, Paul. But who is this Paul? Is this how he's always signed his name? Has this been his signature all along from birth? 
Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. I'll start in uh, verse 1, and I'll read uh, the first nine verses. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he may found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand. And brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This this same temporary blind man, who after his encounter with Jesus, is picked up off the road by the hand, led to Damascus. This is the same man who with the same hand picks up a pen to write this epistle to the church in Rome. Saul in Acts 9 and Paul in Romans 1 are the same man. Now, I have a feeling I'm about to burst some bubbles in here this morning. Um, and so I, I hope by apologizing in advance, you'll be gracious hearers. But legend has it that, that Saul, who persecuted Christians, met Jesus on the road to Damascus and was saved. Legend has it that once he was saved, Jesus gave him a new name and changed his name to Paul. That's a myth. It's a myth. The name-changing part is a myth. Saul, who persecuted Christians, did meet Jesus on the road to Damascus, was converted. The Bible tells us that. It's clear. But his name wasn't changed. There really is no biblical evidence for that. Matter of fact, there's there's biblical evidence on the contrary, that, that even after his conversion, Saul, Paul, took on whatever name was more fitting for the context. And so it's a tale that I'm sure all of us have have, have ran with to varying degrees. I know I did. Because it's a biblical concept, right? Abram to, to Abraham, Jacob to, to Israel. And so it's not, it's not far-fetched. It's not a far-fetched notion. But it isn't a, a biblical one in this case. And, and I think just the implication there is we have to be careful to get our theology and our application from the proper exposition of the text and, and not the, the myths and, and the legends that can easily float around in our day. Um, and, and this, obviously, the, the list of implications are not terribly long. It's not the end of the world if you believe this. But, but Lord willing, we, none of us um, are willing to, to hold to something that, that isn't derived from the Bible, right? However innocent that, that it might be. But, but with that said, Paul does have a new signature here. There, there is something unique here in terms of the, the chronological timeline of Paul's life that we pick it up in Romans 1. He has a new signature. It's not that his name is new in the sense that he's Saul and now Paul, but but he pens his name here as someone with a new identity. As he pens his name, he is penning it as someone who is in Christ. This was, was not a claim, nor the identity that Paul had, 
prior to his eyes being opened to who Christ was on the road to Damascus. As the proverbial scales fell from his eyes, Paul has a new identity. He had union with the only begotten Son. He was a sinner, dead in his sins and trespasses, wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of his soul and body, destined for the holy and just punishment of everlasting torment. And it all changed in a moment when he was regenerated by God, granted the gift of faith, and accounted as righteous in the sight of God through the righteousness of Christ that was imputed to him. And now he has a new signature, a completely transformed identity in which his federal head, his, his covenantal head is no longer Adam, but the Jesus whom he was persecuting. And brethren, this is your story. You too were on the path of destruction, blinded by your own sin, enslaved to its various lusts and pleasures, and in your own willful ways were persecuting the name of Christ. And it didn't come from a light from heaven. You weren't knocked to the ground. But through the proclamation of the gospel, you too were transformed, transferred from death to life. You have a new signature, a new identity. Which leads us then to Paul's new service, verse 1b. Paul, a, a servant of Christ Jesus. This word servant here in the Greek is a word that can be translated bondservant or, or slave. It was very common for Paul to refer to himself as doulos Christu, a slave of Christ. And often when we, when we think of slave or, or servant, we think of someone who, who does things for another person, right? He, he or she is my servant. She, she brings me dinner. She's my servant. He, he mows my lawn. He is my, my servant, which I suppose is, is true to a degree, and, and we'll get to that in just a minute, but, but really what Paul is saying here is much more than Paul, a man who does things for Jesus. Rather, what he is saying is Paul, the one who belongs to Jesus. He's declaring to the church, to Rome, Jesus has bought me. I am His. I belong to Christ. My identity is Christ Jesus our Lord. And there's, there's great humility here. Paul is going to, to say some pretty bold things in this letter. He considers himself less than the least of the saints in, in and of himself. He, he's quite humble here. As he's hanging the hat, his, his, his hat on not himself, but on the validity of the one who owns him. He, he is owned by Christ Jesus. John Murray is so helpful here. He says, Paul here has no hesitation in placing Christ Jesus in the position of Lord in the Old Testament. Think about his, his audience here. There are certainly Jews in the mix who knew the Hebrew Scriptures. They knew the, the law and the prophets. They knew their Old Testament. But, but even Gentiles who, who are learning these things, being trained. Paul is saying, it is Christ. It is Christ. When it is promised in the books of the law that enmity will be put between the serpent and the woman, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That the songs you sing in Psalm 2 of the Lord's anointed, the, the covenants made with your forefathers Israel, the, the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the, the Davidic covenant, it, it is all working in shadowy form towards the one true prophet, priest, and king. It is Christ Jesus and it is he who I am a servant of. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It is for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul is saying, this is where my identity lies. This is who owns me. This is who I am a slave to. It is Christ Jesus. The one whom every knee will eventually bow to and confess to be Lord. And for Paul, he doesn't want it to be too late for his hearers. Paul is properly credentialed to write this letter as a servant of the Master. And we too are properly credentialed for the gospel ministry God calls us to. Why? Because we're servants of the Master. Some might say we, there's a, an identity crisis in the world, which is, which is true. Some people are identifying with just about everything under the sun, right? Men identifying as women, women identifying as men, men and women who identify as non-binary, men who identify as birthing persons. The list goes on and on and on. But, but really, that, that shouldn't surprise us all that much. That, that's the world acting like the world. That's the children of the devil following their master. Their identity is in their master, and they act accordingly. They're acting as, as, they, were, as they should. They're following their master. They're not acting as they were created to act. Even natural law tells us that. But, but they're, obedient, they're being obedient to their master, sin and Satan and themselves. And so what is more potentially concerning to me is the... Identity issues that lie within the church. It's those who are in Christ, but, but struggle to place their identity. That's what has me more concerned. Men and women in the church who are not finding their identity in Christ. Men in the church who, who, who might find their identity in their work, their, their job, their, their vocation women in the church that, that might find their identity in their husband. I, I want to remind you this morning that your job and your husband, they make terrible gods. Lee and I dealt with this our, our first few, few years of marriage, and I got her permission to, to share this this morning. She would tell you that, that she found her identity in her husband the first couple of years. And so when I would let her down or sin against her or express my displeasure with her in some way, it would crush her. Paralyzingly so. Particularly emotionally. But when she took me off the throne and found her identity in Christ and Christ alone, the health of our marriage began to exponentially grow. Yes, we are, we're called to, to serve the home, whether to provide and protect, whether to nurture and to teach. Yes, you're called to lay down your life, to put food on the table and clothes on their backs, but, but the boss who signs your check is not where your identity lies. Y yes, you're called to submit to your husband as he exercises his delegated authority in your home. Yes, he's the spiritual leader and you are his helpmate, but it isn't him you're trying to please, ultimately. He's not your master. He's, you're not a slave to your husband. You're a slave to Christ Jesus. Many struggle to, to find their identity not in their union with Christ, but rather place it in their children, both mothers and fathers, where I know this is a struggle in my own heart. 
the events and, and the activities and the movement of our home is, is dictated sometimes by our children's schedule. And so we, our identity is in, is in their happiness or it's in their growth as an athlete or, or whatever, and not realizing that that's actually harmful for their soul. But brother, when our, when our identity is in our master, when it's rightly aligned and being bought by him, owned by him, being his servant, that's when it's both good for us and what glorifies God. Paul, a servant of children, no. Paul, a servant of his vocation, no. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. This is his new service. There, there was certainly a time in which he served himself. There was certainly a time in which he served the world. Then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And now he has a new service. Moving on to the text. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. There are two words that are important here. First, call, and second, apostle. And we'll deal with these in, in reverse order. First, what is an apostle? The, the, the apostleship that the Paul is referring to here and, and claims as his own is, is a very unique calling. Some often have, have equated apostle with disciple, and, and that's understandable to, to some degree, but it isn't precise enough that the two are not synonymous. A, a disciple is, is a learner and, and a follower. An apostle is, is more of a sent one, a, a commissioned one under God's authority. And so all the apostles were disciples, not all the disciples were apostles. And so in the New Testament, we have in the book of Acts, we find the criteria for apostleship. One, you had to be a disciple of Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. Two, you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection Three, you had to be called and commissioned by Christ himself. That's what we learned from Acts 1, verses 21 through 27. And then there's Paul, who, even though he wasn't an eyewitness of Christ in his resurrection, he had his own encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus and was commissioned and sent by him. And his apostleship was clearly also affirmed by the other apostles. But the apostles were sent, what were they sent to do as sent ones, as disciples were also apostles, they are sent ones, commissioned. What were they commissioned to do? They are commissioned to preach the message of the gospel and to perform miracles. And, and the miracles that they performed and the gifts that they were given were, were given to them for a specific purpose. They were to, to, for vindication. They were to, to vindicate the message that they were heralding, to, to prove the validity of the gospel that they would teach. They preached the gospel and do miracles, really to uphold that message. And so when the, when the apostles died, their, their gifts died with them. There are no modern apostles in the church today. The office of apostle no longer exists, and, and neither do some of their gifts. The, the apostolic gifts, the, the miraculous sign gifts, things like healing and miracles and, and prophecy, those are not gifts given to the church today any longer. They were for a, a specific time, the apostolic age, as the message of Christ is going forth and being spread. Now, does, does God still perform miracles in the church today? Does God still heal? Yes, of course he does. He absolutely does. We, we, we should boldly bring the brother or sister that is ill with cancer and plead with the Lord to heal. 
to do a miraculous work and to cure the disease. But at the end of the day, that, that, that's God's prerogative. That there are no longer the apostles that we can call and say, come and touch this man so that he might be healed. Why is that? Well, because we have the Bible. The canon is closed. And this is the apostolic authority that we move forward in. Paul was credentialed to write this letter to the church in Rome because he had a new status. He wasn't writing under his own authority. He occupied the apostolic office. He was an apostle who spoke on behalf of Christ. And hopefully you can see where I'm going with this already. Brethren, you too are properly credentialed for gospel ministry. Not because you're an apostle, but because of what you herald. This book. This is the apostolic authority for us today. As Christians who are slaves to Christ, this is what we wield on this journey. We are light-wielding slaves to a lost and dark world. You bring light to darkness. You bring the authority of God. You bring the books of the Bible. You too have a new status. When you minister the gospel during family worship, when you talk with the coworker in the cubicle next to you, when you spark up a conversation in a relationship with your neighbor up the street, you don't speak on your own authority. You are sent to speak the word of life. Paul will tell us eventually in this very letter that, that faith comes from hearing and hearing through what? The word of Christ. This church in Rome was hearing the word of Christ through Paul, and now the world hears the word of Christ through us as we speak the Holy, the Holy Scriptures. And, and you, may not, you may not occupy an office in the church. You may not be an apostle or a pastor or an elder, but we very much believe in every member ministry around here. Yes, you have been given officers, elders, and shepherds who in some, sex, some sense are successors, of the apostolic office, but we are not apostles. Sure, we have the, the unique calling of God to, to preach and to teach, to shepherd your soul, but, but the ministry of the gospel is for everyone who claims the name of Christ in some way, shape, or form. And, and a part of our job as your pastors is to equip you for this ministry. For some of you, that means ministering the gospel in your home as you're raising kids and the nurture and instruction of the Lord. For another, it might mean ministering the word over a cup of coffee to the friend who is contemplating taking their own life. For others, it, it might mean ministering the word to your relatives at your Thanksgiving gathering that is coming up. It might look like sowing seeds of the gospel into conversation as you're at the gym. Whatever the different context that, that God is calling us to, we are properly credentialed for this gospel ministry because we go into the world in the Spirit of Christ, and we bring the Word of Christ. Which brings us to the, the second word to consider, and that is calling. God has called Paul to this office. God has called Paul to this work. John Murray again writes this, quote, It is by call that he became an apostle. And the call is effectual appo appointment in which he was invested with the apostolic functions is the consciousness of authority derived from his appointment 
that alone explains and warrants the authority with which the apostles spoke and wrote, end quote. Paul was well equipped to write this letter because he was operating not under his own authority, but he was called by God to be an apostle. Let us consider our, our final point as, as we close. We've considered Paul's new signature, his new service, his new status. Let us consider finally his new separation. Paul, a servant of God, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. One of the reasons why I love the book of Romans is because it is so incredibly gospel-centric. Um, of course, there's, there's a sense in which all of Scripture is, is gospel-centric. It all tells of the same message. God has declared the end from the beginning. It's all about Christ and His reign and His kingdom. But it is well-defined in this letter, which we will see as we make our way through. We're, we're going to notice that this message is undoubtedly clear. The, the character of God, the, the sinfulness of man, the, the sufficiency of Christ, the necessity of faith and the urgency of eternity. We'll learn before we even get out of the first chapter of this epistle that, that God is the creator. And that he created man that, that we might worship and serve him. We, we might say we were created to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Instead, we have turned inward. None is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks God on their own. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin came into the world through one man, our father Adam. And death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. But righteousness came by the free gift of grace through the one man, Jesus Christ. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, Christ alone, the many will be made righteous. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also Give life to your mortal bodies. You will taste the fruit of the resurrection. And the fruit will be sweeter to your soul than is possible to articulate. But if you turn your face to this gospel call, if you close your ear to the kindness of God meant to lead you to repentance, if you continue to live according to the flesh, you will die. And you will taste a bitter death you will suffer under the wrath of a holy God and receive the just judgment that you are due. And the torment that you will endure will never cease. So I plead with you to turn from your sin in yourself in repentance and trust Christ. Receive the gift of faith. Trust Him with your life. This is God's gospel. This is God's message of salvation to you this morning. This is the gospel that Paul was separated unto, set apart for. The origin of this gospel is divine. It's not his own good news. It's the message of God, which is what makes him properly credentialed to write this letter. 
Paul comes writing and heralding, preaching, proclaiming, not the authority of his own news, but the gospel of God. And brethren, one last time, we too are properly credentialed to preach the gospel to this community. We are separated unto the gospel of God. It is not our own news that we come to proclaim. We did not move across the river to Chillicothe under our own authority. We came separated, set apart, by and for a distinct purpose, the gospel of God.